Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca is the John and Natty MacArthur University Professor at Harvard University, where she has a joint appointment at the Harvard Business School in the General Management and Strategy Units. She spent the first 21 years of her career at MIT, much of it at Eastman Kodak, Professor of Management. She teaches reimagining capitalism in the MBA program and sits on the boards of Amgen and of IDEX Labs. We're really excited to have her on the show because we're going to be primarily discussing her new book, which is called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Welcome to the deep dive. Phil, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So this is one of my more interesting shows for a number of reasons. One, I think the the book is in incredibly timely. Any, I think any conversation that includes reimagining capitalism is one that is very prescient and, and very needed. And also because we're in very disconnected spaces in, in more ways than one. Um, so it's, it's, it's been an interesting start to the, to the morning already. I, I guess my very first question, which is among my notes, is the premise of the book is called Reimagining Capitalism. And my very first question is, can it actually be reimagined? A pretty basic question, but it covers quite a lot. I, I think it gets us off <laughs> to the re- on the right foot, I hope. So this is a variant of the question, why reimagine it? Why not just throw it out the window? So, which I get asked by uh, some of the younger audiences I talk to. For sure, it can be reimagined. Capitalism has changed enormously in the, you name it, 300 years it's been around. It was very different here in the States in the 50s and 60s. It's very different in Japan. It's very different in Denmark. It's different in China. So for sure, it's a human system. We built it. Wait, wait, wait. You're an anthropologist and you're asking me this. It's a human system. We built it. We can change it. So for sure, it can be reimagined. And the reason why I asked that question, which is a a little, it's not 100% tongue-in-cheek, but it is designed a little bit to be tongue-in-cheek, I must admit, solely because, you know, I'm going to editorialize a little bit here in order to explain where that question came from is, and I think you alluded to it when you said, you know, some of your younger audiences might ask you, you know, why not just throw it out the window, right? And, you know, one of my favorite people, Ursula Le Guin said much the same thing in one of her books, close to her, um, when she had got an award for National Book Award and she gave a speech where she said, you know, what you just said, we can change anything. These are human systems. We can design different ones. So given the baggage, the psychological, the historical baggage that comes with capitalism, why not create something different? Mm, That's a great question. I Um, have those from time to time. Yeah. Sorry. I'm just just playing for time. Because... All the other alternatives we've come up with so far haven't worked nearly as well. Capitalism at its best is amazing. The very the heart of capitalism, free competition, you make what you kill, right? So if you build the firm, you get to keep the returns. 
that's a driver of unbelievable productivity and innovation and creativity. If it's unchecked, if there are no rules and no limits, it I think I say this in the book, it runs the risk of morphing into something monstrous. And I think, in fact, we are in a monstrous moment. But the underlying mechanism is okay. The, the problem is we've lost the sense that the free market needs free politics, that capitalism only works when it's held in balance by democratically accountable government and strong civil society. That if all you do is say, go forth and make money, you get, well, let me name names, you get slavery and piracy and theft and exploitation. And why don't we burn the planet? It makes me money right now. I mean, yeah, it'll be a problem for other people, but not for me. So capitalism unchecked is a huge problem. It's as if we had you know, a powerful tiger. We've got to get it on a leash. And the trouble with getting away from capitalism altogether is you know, my reading of history, which is very personal, is the alternative to capitalism is not utopia. The alternative to, and essentially I'm talking about old-fashioned liberal democracy, you know, democracy, strong society, capitalism, the alternative to that is extraction. It's the rich and the powerful get to keep everything. And sometimes it's called socialism and it's Stalin and or Mao. And sometimes it's called democracy, but it isn't. And it's Putin's Russia. But in essence, we've got no choice. We have to find a way to try and make this thing we have work. At least that's what I believe. I may well not be right, but but that's what I think is true. And I appreciate that all of us in our own ways, you know, we are in the system and we're trying to navigate the system as best we can. So my purpose when I read the book and, you know, I've read lots of books, not to brag, but I read, Right. And, and many of us read, you know, we study these things, we, we look at them, and particularly from my focus is to go across a broad spectrum of work in order to like better frame a central issue, right? So those who listen to the show, they know I worked in finance. I worked at Goldman for years. I was a trader. It doesn't get more, you know, predatory than that, right? Because it, it, it encapsulates... Every, every much, a lot of things that are very um, just kind of built into the system, so to speak, right? It's short-term thinking in the most purest sense of the word, right? When you're a trader and you're doing transactions, it's second to second, minute to minute. Like I didn't particularly care about the stock I traded because I was facilitating on behalf of clients. The client might care, but my role in committing capital in a transaction was completely different, right? My my frame was completely different. So I'm I'm explaining all that to say that, you know, I'm not what I would what most people consider like someone unschooled in how this all works. But I think that's also given me an opportunity to critique it quite like loudly and plainly. And I agree that when given the alternatives that we might have had from a historical perspective, and people often do this, they'll say like, oh, well, what do you got other than capitalism? Or, you know, socialism doesn't work. Or, you know, we'll make these broad statements, which I get. But one of the things I offer, and I'm curious on your thoughts, and then I'll kind of get back to the core questions that I had, which will make probably make, make more sense once I ask this particular question is, you know, we didn't always have capitalism. We didn't 
always have socialism as an alternative, right? So we can come up with something else, right? In the way that like, I keep coming back to that because in the history of human existence, it wasn't always capitalism. There were other forms and systems and ways in which people decided to organize their social, economic, and, and political life. And I'm not even saying all those models work perfectly either, but we can constantly evolve and improve or move away from these models. And the other, the other one little last thing I'll do, because it's kind of long and I don't like to editorialize that much, but the other piece is, is capitalism even reimagined compatible with where we are as a ecosystem, as a planet? You know, there are no more markets, right? Coke is available everywhere. <laughs> like, it's just, has it reached a point where it just can't continue like this because it demands, you know, infinite growth, infinite scale, and those things are impossible on a planet that is finitely resourced. So that's a lot. I'm sorry, but no, boom, go. Fabulous. <laughs> so for sure, we've had other systems. In certain times and places, we've had something that looks much more balanced and much more fair, something that might look like, let's call it localism or radical decentralization. So groups living together that produce most of what they need, that hold the power dynamics in check by using, you're the anthropologist, but culture and myth and ritual so that the king doesn't get out of control, so there's some sense of balance. And you can go to places that look pretty good, that look like that, where people have basically said, I'm turning in, I'm growing what I need, I'm trying to not connect, and, I, and we're trying to do the right thing right here, right now. So for me, the big, big question is, Given that we have capitalism right here and this immense concentration of wealth and power, are we better off trying to like wrench the levers away and say, no, no, we're going to do this differently? And you know, my, my friend Paul Adler at UCLA has written this great book, which basically says, forget this. We can do planning now. I mean, we have the computer, we could plan. We could have state ownership of the means of production. We could build a society that worked for us. We could focus on well-being, not on growth. We have the technology to do that. And I love Paul. And I really hope he's right. But I don't think he is. That, that's my problem, is I cannot see how to get there from here. And so I am all over employee ownership. I am all over strong government with strong regulation. I want a real safety net. I mean, to me, I just can't see the transition. And I wanted to write a book that was about how we get there from here. And, and so I've read some of the same books, right? And I, yes, there's a different way we could do things, but we have this immense concentration of wealth and power in the hands of people who, by and large, don't want to give it up. So I wrote the book to try and persuade them and others, that this was really, you know, to use the Buddhist term, an unskillful way of moving forward. That it, you know, it really, that the way we're thinking about things now will only lead us to disaster. And so they need to give up some of that power and some of that money. And we need to insist that they do that. But I didn't go all the way to zeroing the whole thing out. 
a little earlier when we were talking, you mentioned in, in as a part of an answer, this idea of, you know, mythologies, the stories that we tell each other and, and capitalism is part of that tradition. And it made me think a little bit about mythology, right? And in and, and the way that you framed it, we often, when people talk about capitalism, they go back to Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, right? But we don't so much mention the moral sentiments. And in the book, you mentioned like, Thomas Friedman, for example, and the Friedman School of Economics has been so important in this more modern story of capitalism. But yet, you know, Pinochet could be mentioned in that part of that conversation as well. So I'm trying to get to this idea of stories that we tell and why we choose certain stories relative to others as we're discussing capitalism. Shareholder value maximization is a myth. It's a very powerful story, and it has a whole kind of pre-myth area, which is if we maximize shareholder value, we will make us all rich, and everyone will be free, and there'll be opportunity freedom. But that's got completely lost. And so now we have a dominant story, which is you have to maximize shareholder value. I mean, that's what we've been telling our students for years. That's what most managers believed until really recently. And it has all the elements of a myth in that if you don't do it, you fall away, you get punished. It's You're not one of the tribe. One of the badges of being in the tribe is you, you adhere to this, this story. And the reason I want to call it a myth is, yeah, you have to give a decent return to your investors. But, but you, you can tell it's a myth both because, in fact, that's not what the law says. The law does not say you have to maximize shareholder value at all times. It really does not. That's not your fiduciary duty. And in fact, when you look at why we say we need to maximize shareholder value, it's dependent on a set of assumptions that don't hold at all anymore. So the whole thing is, but, but it's, it's so helpful. It's such a useful story. You know, and people made so much money pursuing the story and it, it lets them off the hook. They don't have to do anything else. It lets them sleep well at night because they can tell themselves they're moral people because they're doing, they're maximizing shareholder value. So I think thinking about this sort of core as a myth, as a story is exactly right. And then you could broaden it, of course, and say that we're telling ourselves a story about capitalism more generally, that there is no real alternative, that it is the only way forward, that it is the only source of prosperity and freedom. And yeah, I mean, these stories are incredibly powerful. I mean, I wrote the book, it must be obvious to try and help shift the narrative about what we're about as we do this and try and kind of replace it. I mean, one of my friends got really angry with me. He read the book and he said, Rebecca, it's all about cultural change. It's all about changing the myth. And you've written a book that is about, you know, business case and doing the right. And I said, yeah, I know. But I don't think you can change the myth unless you you sort of work some of these aspects. But yeah, totally with you. Capitalism is a story. And I said Thomas Friedman. I meant Milton Friedman. So I apologize to Thomas Friedman. Not that he's spectacular either. But nonetheless, it was the wrong Friedman that I was picking on. I met Milton. I said Thomas. So apologies there. But we got the point because Chicago School of Economics was in there. And so I think listeners can can forgive that. But, you know, so much of 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 what we're talking about is a, is a story, right? And even as we've had this, this conversation, you know, these ideas of, of freedom have come up, you know, these ideas of liberty, they're all cooked into the capitalist story. So we have an economic system, a monetary system that now becomes 
a social and political story. Right. And in, in my lifetime, you know, I was too young really for Pinochet. So it's a historical thing to me, though a significant one. But I came up in a radical version of that through Reagan and Thatcher, you know. And so maybe their story, their linking, they're telling these things, the kind of, you know, greed is good, Wall Street 80s story is a big part of, of how I think about these narratives. And they are compelling, right? How do we construct another narrative that is bolstered by, by case studies, which I think you do, you do in the book? I read Ayn Rand as a teenager and thought it was amazing. You know, I thought it was fantastic. And it's only as I grew older, I was like, that's a little bit weird. You know, the idea that you can just rely on yourself and that it's all about just individual liberty seems really odd to me now. But you're right. I mean, Reagan and Thatcher and to a lesser extent, Bush and others who came after them made this story about capitalism is all about freedom. And of course, like all good stories, it has some truth to it. I mean, feudalism was not about choice. You know, the, the system before capitalism, where there was a big man who controlled most of everything, uh, there wasn't much choice. There wasn't much freedom of opportunity. And, and when it's worked, capitalism has really made a huge difference. I mean, you look at China and the number of people who can lead quite different lives because they went a little bit capitalist. So I'm stalling because I don't know how to answer your question. Like, how do we build an alternative narrative? My guess is we tell ourselves new stories. And we talk about ways to run firms differently, ways to run industries differently, what could be true for our country as a whole. And some of that is looking back. So some of that, if we, we look back to the period after World War II, where there were strong unions and business and government were working in partnership, and we say, could we rediscover that, but on an inclusive basis where everyone's in the mix? Could we do that? I think... You know, it's why people like me talk about Denmark, because it's such a compelling story. You want to quit your job, you still have your health care, you still have your childcare benefits, you have retraining if you want it. If you work at a McDonald's, you $22 an hour. And so I think these stories are important. I, I was just talking to a friend, I'm just off a call with a friend who made a movie about Ray Anderson at Interface Carpets. I don't know if you know the story, but... You know, and it, it, it weaves in the story of Ray's life and his conversion and his realization that the goal of business should not be profits, but to make a real difference. And it, it's, it's, it's fun to watch. So I think movies, I think, I think songs, I think music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but mostly, mostly just people doing it differently so that sooner or later everyone's met something that's different. And and it's funny with talking about Anne Rand. I, I was having a eh, I wouldn't really call it an argument, but I was going back and forth a little bit with not even a friend of mine, but someone connected to a guy I went to business school with, and we were commenting on the fact that the Anne Rand Institute got PPP money from the government, and and I was like, well, this is ironic, right? Like this is someone who you know, advocates for, you know, against the second handers, you know, those of us who are taking it. Cause I, I read Ayn Rand too. And I, I think it is a seductive story depending on where you are in your life. It's very much like existentialism. Like everybody goes through that phase where they're like, Oh, the world is hopeless. Camus had, he was right. You know, Sartre was right. And what happened with me is I, I remember I read the fountainhead for the first time right when I got to college and I went to college at, at Howard university in DC. And it's predominantly black school. And I read the book and of her books, I think is the 
best written of her books as a story and, you know, kind of get seducted, sucked into the story. And and then I kind of looked around and I was like, this ain't the black experience, right? Like, <laughs> this is ridiculous that I'm sitting at a school, predominantly black students with our journey in America to think that it's all about rugged individualism. And, and I, and I rejected it out of in hand. Right. And I think that's important be, only because not to particularly shit on Anne Rand, there's enough people to do that without me doing it, but to demonstrate that for some folks, these narratives, these stories just don't really make sense with their lived experience. Right. And I can respect like the feudal piece, but then I'm like eight, nine people own as much as half the world. You know, I think I'd prefer the king <laughs> at this point, right? <laughs> at least I'd have my own vegetable garden and be able to get some turnips and potatoes out of the ground. Like, I don't I don't know if Jeff Bezos is a better alternative, right? Uh, and he's not as susceptible to the guillotine. I, I, think I, I think I'm going to leave that one, although I see exactly where you're going. But <laughs> I, I want to come back to the idea of sources of new stories. Yeah. And, you know, I can't speak to this. I, I've seen the statistics. My guess is that as we see more black and brown entrepreneurs and they tell their story and they run their firms, that will be helpful. But I, I want to go in a really different direction, which is, have you noticed what's happening in cognitive psychology, where the psychology is going and the behavioral economists? They keep discovering that humans like each other, that altruism is real that humans have a natural desire to cooperate. And in fact, they're much happier when they do. And I mean, you see, I, I know you know this, but much lower rates of suicide among the black community than you do among a disadvantaged white community, because the community is still in, intact, right? Or more or less intact. That seems to me another story. I mean, maybe this is what a Cambridge professor would say, but it's super interesting, right? I mean, the fact that in economics, there's a major stream of work now which is all about purpose and uh, cooperation and trust. And we've been thinking about this as only driven by individuals. I mean, you're an economist, right? So you remember what our training was like, right? It was just, we it's all about individuals. We maximize value. That's everything. And we, we've got a model of a human being. And the fact that you have a totally different model coming out in the research and in how psychology is starting to talk about people is, I think, really interesting. No. So could that be helpful too? I think it can be. I think the more we share our total experience and move it away from just a strict economic model, because economics is life, right? It's it's all these things are connected to how we, we think about our place in it, I think is helpful. One thing I wanted to touch base on is the pieces that you describe in the book. Like you go through, you know, quite a lot of detail about you know, what are these steps we can take to undergo this reimagining? And I want to leave like space to kind of walk through some of those things because you do critique these ideas of shareholder value, being purpose-driven, thinking about rewiring finance. And I want to give space for you to kind of walk through some of that, that thesis of, of what you view as being possible in that reimagining. So I have an idea which may not be right, that as more firms start taking the idea of addressing environmental and social problems seriously and trying to build a business model that's actively about creating good in the world as opposed to just making money, that that will do two things. One, it will create some good and 
you know, can really change the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. But the other thing I've seen happening in the firms that are trying that is as they try it, they become very aware that they can't do it. So you build commitment inside the firm. You talk a lot about purpose. If you're serious about this, you build a really authentic sense, even the seemingly innocuous statement, let's put our customers before our profits. Let's like really serve our customers. What do they really need? If you start to build an organization that does that, then people start to say, well, what do our employees really need? And what does our community really need? And whoa, we, we can't give them everything that they need. And so then I, I've seen firms moving towards saying, well, if we all come together and cooperate with each other, maybe then we can make it pre-competitive. So if we all agree to pay more taxes to improve the education and healthcare system, or if we all agree not to use child labor, maybe you know we can make a difference. And so I talk a bunch in the book about self-regulation and cooperation and can't leave out the fact that when I said to one of the major historians of self-regulation, I thought it could save the world. He looked at me and just burst out laughing. He said, you know, Rebecca, come on, you know, like business gets together and they all trust each other and it's not going to work. And well, he turns out to have been right. I mean, so a lot of these self-regulatory efforts have made a lot of progress. They've developed measures. They've issued statements. They, they have changed us, some reality on the ground, but then they work out. And I've been in rooms where people have literally said, well, this isn't working. What are we going to do next? And the thing you do next is you say, okay, we have to make it so everyone has to behave well. We need essentially a referee to insist that we do the right thing. We need guardrails. And the two directions in which they turn are finance and government. So I have a whole chapter in the book called Rewiring Finance, which is why it might be the case that this gets really creepy to your earlier point. You know, 12 people between them control more than 40% of the world's financial assets. I mean, how creepy is that? It's really creepy. The upside is that for them, these big problems are not externalities. They're not things they can diversify away from. They're so rich that they have an investment in the world doing well. And so maybe they will pay attention to climate change. And there's some evidence they're really starting to push the firms on climate change because it's going to have a very severe impact on their whole portfolio. Honestly, I don't think they're going to make much movement on inequality or inclusion. I just don't see that happening. But it's interesting on climate. And then the last place people turn is, well, okay. I mean, I've literally been in conference rooms where people said, okay, we have to talk to the government. We need regulation. <laughs> And so you see firms beginning to think about engaging with government and rediscovering the power of government. I mean, I'm really seeing it in the conversations about social inclusion that I've been included in. You know, firms saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to hire. I'm going to change my promotion process. I'm going to train. I'm going to create good jobs. I'm going to raise the wages. But, you know, if we don't increase, improve the educational system or the healthcare system, this is going nowhere. And so, I mean, when I wrote this book, which is what I put it in a little over eight months ago, and I was talking about it, I never raised the question of structural reform. I never talked about democracy. But the combination of COVID and the murder of George Floyd is like really raised the conversation about, whoa, government's not working. That's a serious problem. And so I'm not telling you it's all a done deal and it's going to happen. In my book, I talk about the only times I could find historically where business really stepped up and said, okay, I want a functioning democracy. I'm up for higher taxes, to your point, right? I've made too much money. You should tax me more. The only times I could find when business had stepped up and done that 
was when things were basically coming completely unglued. But, you know, things might become completely unglued. And then having a group of business people who were thinking in this way could be really helpful. Yeah. And I think that ungluing is a big part of it because, you know, I was in college in the 90s, you know, business school toward the end of the 90s. And just to set perspective and conversations like this, books like yours would only be in a space of academia. You know, there was no, in my mind, serious critique of capitalism in the world. It existed, yeah, in a classroom, oh, critical theory of blah, blah. But, you know, business people were not thinking about these things. And even regular people were not thinking about these things. And I think since, really since Occupy, the conversation has changed, you know, that the branding of of Occupy to say, we're the 99%, they're the 1%. This is normalized language. You know, the statistics are different, right? And when you really get into it, but I think people are, are willing to have a different conversation. And I remember last year, the Milken Institute had a whole, their whole conference was about, you know, re, they didn't say reimagining, but it was like rethinking or reclassifying or making a better capitalism or whatever. And this is like Michael Milken Institute, right? Like, come on, it doesn't get less social when it comes to that, that perspective. So I'm only offering that to say that I think all of this is very timely. And how do we continue to use so many lessons and anecdotes that you have in the book to bolster the argument when, you know, we can't force people to do these things, right? Which also leads to kind of an accounting question, which I'll save after that answer. (laughs) Uh, Something you said has been making me think. That's helpful. I like that. (laughs) You said you know, when you went read Anne Rand, it was so contrary to your own lived experience. And that made me think about my own experience being female, which, you know, I hesitate to raise because, you know, I'm a highly privileged woman from a very privileged background. And it's not analogous to the experience of Black Americans in that sense at all. But there's an analogy in the two of first approximation. I mean, there's mean and then there's variance. Uh-huh. Women find the total oh, it's all just about me, 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 me right now. Bizarre, (laughs) you know? Like who raises the kids and takes care of the old people? And this idea that you're you're an island to yourself is totally nutty if you're a middle-aged woman like I am. I mean, there's just no way. And I notice when I'm talking about the book, and again, I, I, I don't mean to say this is true of all men or all women, and you know, there's a lot of variants, but to a first approximation, men will come up to me and say, well, it's really interesting, Rebecca, you know, tell me more about the business case. And you know, how, how do we think about that? And in general, women come up and they're like, that was amazing. What are we going to do? <laughs> you know, Because it's just so immediate. I mean, the idea that you would toast the planet to maximize short-term returns seems loopy. If you're focused on your children, one of my good friends founded an NGO called Mothers Out Front because she was sitting around her kitchen table with a bunch of friends and we were like, well, who really thinks about the future and who really values the future? And the answer was mothers. So she's been mobilizing all these moms to show up in state houses and legal hearings and make a fuss and talk about what's going on. And they're so motivated. And it turns out, I didn't know this, but I bet you do that 
you know, if you can just get 20 mums to keep showing up and, you know, being politely aggressive, like people listen because many politicians never see a constituent talking about some of these issues and so showing up and doing. So I think that kind of like finding people who see how wacky the current system is and are willing to stand up and work on it and push for reform and make up a light nuisance of themselves. I think that's incredibly helpful. I mean, really, really helpful. I love that point because it, it allows me to ask the accounting question, um, <laughs> which I'm glad you mentioned women. I'm glad specifically because I didn't start to go there, but now I can add it in. And so the accounting question is really about cost in the sense that I think if you look at a lot of how these systems are designed, they do not take the full cost of a thing into account, right? So they'll say like, oh, we can, you know, extract some oil here, but there's no like real long-term implications of what that really means beyond the cost of the drill and going into the ground. And there's a lot of intangible costs that, that factor into that. And your point about women is sort of the same, but different because women do have historically done so much labor that is unpaid labor. So in the way we capture labor cost in this current incarnation of capitalism, it does not account for the labor that is done by mothers or, or really any parent that stays at home, but we'll say historically that has been mothers and historically has been women. So they're, everything that they add to society isn't factored in. And in the pandemic, we've seen another layer of that because women are in the workforce now, but yet as we work from home, and children are also home, the burden of childcare, not burden, but you know, the responsibility of childcare, better word, still falls disproportionately on the woman, even when both spouses are at home. And I'm not saying that's every household, but there's a lot of households, you know? So how do we tell a better cost story as it pertains to capitalism? Because if I think if we told a better story, iPhones would cost $3,000, you know, we wouldn't sell bullets and it'd be a different place, right? <laughs> Women would be paid what they're worth, whether they're at home or at work, because labor at home is labor. There should be a cost to it. How do we make this an accounting argument to get the guys on board? Who do we talk to at, who do we talk to at FASB and GAP and all these other organizations? <laughs> What are their names and numbers? Okay, so I, I don't know, but I know people who know their names and numbers. You know, I say in my book, I hadn't realized accountants were fundamental to the future of civilization, but it's for exactly what you laid out, that they absolutely are. Because if we don't measure it, we won't care about it and we won't make the shift. So paradoxically, changing the accounts is like part of changing the story. So there's a couple of things going on here. One is there are some people we are just underpaying or not paying at all. And I'm thinking of caregivers, for example, who are some of the most amazing people often, and they give this incredible care, and we pay them basically peanuts and no health insurance. So that's an issue. Then there's when we only think about income, like every business person knows you need an income statement and a balance sheet, right? You need to know the assets. But as a society, we're not measuring our assets. So for example, I think an unpoisoned ocean full of fish was actually quite valuable, but doesn't show up anywhere. Air that you can breathe doesn't show up anywhere. 
a stable climate so you don't get a massive flood. It's nowhere measured. And that's so a whole class of assets. And then there's the unanticipated side effects, right? So if I burn five cents worth of coal-generated electricity, if I use that to power my lights, we know that I'm imposing at least another five cents worth of health damage on the people who live near that coal-fired station and another five cents in climate climate damage. So to your point about the iPhone should be $3,000, that's not a joke. I mean, coal-fired electricity- it's arbitrary number, but- Should, yeah, no, no. But, but coal-fired electricity, for example, should cost three times what it does. And so all of this is super important. And I think we're going to have to do it step by step. But the reason I keep going, you know, like mumble, mumble, democratically accountable, fully transparent government is because if we had a government like that, it would insist that firms paid these costs. So, you know, if you're going to throw stuff into the river, that's an early idea. It didn't used to be controversial. Throw poison into the river, fix it. <laughs> and certainly, and that should be, you know, in the price. If you made a mistake, okay, but but it should be in the price. It should come out of your profits. So the good news is there's a bunch of people working on this. So you've got literally accountants working on trying to help firms think about the unanticipated costs they impose and how they can do better. You've got um, Joe Stiglitz, the economist at Columbia, is front and center on trying to design new forms of national account. So at the moment, we just look at GDP. But GDP goes up if we put more people in prison. You know, it goes up if I throw more pollution into the river and then have to clean it up. So how do we measure the assets? How do we measure a healthy society? Because, you know, Angus Deaton's fabulous book, Deaths of Despair, which I think is just such a stunning book. And death rates are increasing among like nearly all. If you look at whites who don't have a college degree, death rates are just going up and up and up. And they suggest it's for many reasons, but one reason is just because the society has just collapsed around them. No sense of meaning, no sense of future. How do you put, well, we haven't even talked about AI and robotics, right? It might be that if all you cared about maximize, was maximizing profits, you just replace everyone with robots. And maybe we do that and send everyone a check, but I'm not sure I want to live in a world like that. I think jobs are an incredible source of dignity and meaning and purpose. And we should really be thinking, like, how do we make sure that we use the technology to create great jobs and to, as a complement? How are we measuring that? How are we measuring the quality of jobs? Do I feel respected at work? Do I feel I have dignity as a human being at work? That's like really important. If we're going to build a good society, we should be measuring that, and we're not. So, yes, love accountants, and we need new measures, for sure. The statistic that you mentioned about death rates, particularly suicide rates, there was an article in the New York Times, I never remember exactly what it was all about, but it was like highest rate of suicide for white men over 40. Like whenever that was, I think it was like 2015, it might have been 2016, because right. we were like in primary season. And that was when I knew Trump was going to win. Mm. I, I read that and I was like, this is a wrap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that was my, not so my, but it was obvious. Right. And I was like, okay, this sort of agreement and dislocation in one's adherence to a system is going to be the downfall of that system. And here we are <laughs> four years later. <laughs> it's so interesting that so many people went to the problem is people not like me, rather than the problem is the guys with all the money running the system. I mean, they elected a billionaire, you know? 
Yes. So, I mean, that's another whole conversation, but how do we take that despair and anger and really point it or help like point it in the right direction? But, you know, I, I think, and we're not going to spend any time on him, but I think the mythology is also, you know, you know, folks look at these, at these people, not that he's a titan of industry, but they, you know, America in my mind is like the lottery. Everybody thinks they're one moment away from being those people, which is why they don't really want to get rid of those people because they, they believe that they will be those people or they could be. And so it becomes a powerful incentive to keep those systems in place. So that's my commentary on. Well, and of course, the people, the, the people benefiting from the system have every incentive to try and maintain that myth. No, we absolutely. know from the data that it's social mobility in the U.S. is now significantly lower than in most parts of Europe and in Canada. Yeah, so absolutely, absolutely. Where you are born is where you will stay. Your zip yes. code matters more than anything else. Yeah, you might break out of that if you go to like a really good school, but maybe we'll see. <laughs> you know, I want to get to like one other thing before we could do the final two segments of the show because we, you know, we can kind of talk about this forever. In the book, you mentioned this idea of inclusion and how it's so and why it's important versus like extraction and kind of juxtapose these two ideas. And I wanted to give an opportunity to kind of walk through, you know, where we've been missing maybe that inclusion and where inclusion can actually maybe be a part of telling a a different story. Extraction has been how most human societies have governed themselves for thousands of years. So under an extractive regime, the rich and the powerful own everything and control the society. So if you think about ancient Egypt, you think about Henry VIII, those are, you know, Pharaoh in ancient Egypt, he got all the surplus, he built the pyramids, he buried himself in gold, everybody else, you know, did whatever. It seems that if you leave a group of humans together, that's the danger. That's where they go. So what does inclusive mean? What's, what are inclusive institutions? Inclusive institutions are all about the balance of power. In inclusive ins- under an inclusive institution, instead of trying to win, you say, we would all be better off if everyone came to the table. And I don't have to like it, but I think giving you a view and a voice will make the whole society better off, and that will make me better off. That's the underlying premise of inclusive society. And when I say it, you can see how fragile it is. I mean, that's that's a hard sell. If you have a huge amount of wealth and power, and I'm saying to you, to be very concrete, you know, breaking unions was a mistake. We need to bring back some kind of voice for the people doing the work. It doesn't have to be a union. It could be a works council. It could be a variety of ways to do it. And you need to sit down at the table with people who represent your employees and talk about where we're going. That's hard. That's a hard thing to do. The reason to do it is, is it's true. Inclusive societies are much richer, much more stable. They grow much faster than extractive regimes. And so, but you have to make that gamble and you have to say everyone else is going to make that gamble too. And that's why one of the stories we need to get to again is democracy works and my vote works. And I, and the other guys are not the enemy. They are, you know, the people we're trying to work this out with. And so that's, that's how I think of inclusion. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned labor because it's it's actually in my notes that um because I never want to forget that. And when 
you know, because in my work as a strategist, I'm often asked to talk about the future of work. And when people talk about AI and technology and all that kind of stuff, I think those things are all great. But I routinely tell people and anyone who listens to the show, they've heard this a million times. The future of work is labor. If you do not have a representative labor movement, then workers do not have recourse. And as we've shifted to a professional class of so-called workers, you see this with Uber and Lyft and all these sort of gig economy type of things. They dislocated labor from power. You become now a contractor and they control everything, you know? And I think that becomes easier because I remember, you know, the story of labor unions are all corrupt because they're all run by the mafia and Jimmy Hoffa and Reagan broke the air traffic control union and all the rest of it. And now here we are. Right. So I want to spend a little bit of time on how can we include that as part of the narrative? Because very often labor and the reason why labor is in the situation it's in, like I tell people to read a book called Subterranean Fire and read about the history of the labor movement and how violent it's been against the labor movement. Like people didn't just didn't decide, oh, I just want to, don't want to pick it, (laughs) right? Even in the pandemic, the smear campaign that Amazon used here in New York against one of their workers in Staten Island who was trying to organize, you know, it's terrible, right? And that's part of the disinformation. So I want to say, like, how do you, how do we make that a better part of the conversation or a more realistic part of the conversation? Oh, God. I, you know, in, I think it was in the 20s, the automotive in the depression, the beginning of the depression, the automotive firms hired Pinkerton and people with machine guns yeah. to, Crackheads. To, fire, to fire on people trying to organize. I mean, we've lost the story of how unions helped build the, the prosperity of the 50s and 60s and 70s, and we have to find a way to get it back. I don't know what to say beyond what others say, right? We need to organize. We need to find alternative ways to organize. It needs to be in the narrative. So, you know, I'm a Harvard Business School professor. I'm proud to stand up and say unions are super important. All the data we have suggests that societies are more equal and healthier when um, employees have a voice. And that's a super important thing we need to talk about. So I'm happy to do my little bit. How to do it, I don't know. I mean, I've been to some amazing conferences, you know, and just sat at the edge of the room and listened to people talk about how to organize worker cooperatives. I mean, there are some people in this country who are amazing, you know, and are really trying to find a way to rebuild the sense of of workers together and the difference that that could make. And so every way we can, you know, change the laws to make that easier as you know, there are a lot of legal barriers now. It's super yeah. tough in the United States, super tough to form a union. I mean, one of my favorite stories is BMW, who actively wanted a works council in their automotive plants in the South. And no, no, they couldn't have them because, you know, they... they, they right to work state, probably. Right. But, I mean, you, you have an incredible seat at the table. I mean, you're, you're, at, you're at Harvard your class, like I've read, is one of the more popular classes. So you're filling, you're getting an opportunity to really fill minds that are going to be the leaders with important stuff. So you're doing a lot. 
is my point. Um, Mostly I feel like I'm in a box talking to a camera. You're the one talking to thousands of people on a regular basis. Well, I, I try, but we're, do, we're all doing our part. We're all doing what we can. The story. And, and I really appreciate that. I want to get to our last two segments, which is off the dome, just off the dome and the drop, off the dome and just some quick rapid fire questions. So my first one, is because I read a little bit more than the basic bio. I try to do a little bit of research. And so you're a cellist. You do play the cello, right? Oh, I do very badly, but with great enthusiasm. I play That's about okay. I play about at a level of a not very good 14-year-old. And I'm immensely proud right. of that. <laughs> good. Now everyone, most people know Yo-Yo Ma, right? Even if they don't know he's a cellist, they know the name, right? So what I want to ask you is like, there's this thing that we do in hip hop where people be like, yo, I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. So everybody knows Yo-Yo Ma. So I'm not going to ask you what you think about him as a cellist, but who is the cellist that other cellists love? Truls Mork is a Norwegian, is fabulous. Absolutely amazing. But I could give you a bunch more. I mean, Yo-Yo Ma is an amazing cellist. He really is. Of course. But for me, the cello is just this incredible sound. And there are four or five, but Truls Mork is where I would start. He's fantastic. Okay, perfect, perfect. Now, this might be unfair because you are a musician and you're also an accomplished academic. But if you have to choose one thing to interact with for the rest of your life, either music or books, you can only choose one. Which one is it going to be? It's books. It would break my heart, but it's books. Okay. And my last off the dome, before we get to the drop, is you're at Harvard and you've also been at MIT. So you've been in Boston a lot, right? Um, So I was going to pick on Boston, but it's too easy as a New Yorker to just pick on a Boston thing. But so I'll just ask specifically about Harvard. What is the most Harvidian cliche that is actually true for someone who teaches there? And Harvidian is just a word I made up. Yeah, no, 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 no. I know exactly what I mean. What is the cliche that is absolutely true? The quiet assumption that this is the best university in the world. Okay. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Fair enough. That says a lot. <laughs> it's, I mean, and everyone, you know, anyone you asked, like in public would say, oh, yeah, MIT, Yale, Stanford, all great universities. But push comes to shove, nah. I work for the best. There you go. There you go. So I, I did them quick, but I want to let us go out on the drop, which is an opportunity for e- both of us to share something that our listeners should should check out or know about. And it can be absolutely anything. I could go first or I could let you go first. Either or. What are you feeling like? Uh, why don't you go first? <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm easy and fast. It's a, I'm recommending a book. I gave one in, the, in our prime in our conversation, but that's not technically a drop. But the book that I'm going to recommend folks read is E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. I, ref, I, re, I go back to this book all the time. People who know me are sick and tired of me talking about this book, but I thought it was appropriate given our conversation because it does provide some philosophical as well as economic alternatives to our, our current story. So I thought it was fitting for our robust conversation. So my drop is E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. It's a fabulous book. I love your drop. My drop is a book by Arthur Whaley. It's a collection of classical Chinese poetry. I've owned my copy for maybe 40 years. 
And it is my book. The classical Chinese poets, they found themselves often in very difficult situations. They rooted themselves in the natural world in a very profound way. And they are all about how do you act when there is no hope? How do you act when you're just one person? How do you find your center and keep moving? And it, it's this mix of holding, you know, holding the fact that we're all going to die and that the world is not going in the direction we want, and yet finding a way to celebrate and move forward. And so for anyone who, who hasn't read much classical Chinese poetry, that, that's where I would start. Arthur Whaley, Chinese Poetry. Awesome. That is a great job. And I'm inspired to check that out as well. I think poetry is becoming more in vogue. I've had quite a few guests like bringing up poetry, mentioning poetry. I think it's it's a form that's meeting our moment in an odd way, but it's something I'm noticing, like it's coming up a lot in non-literary circles. <laughs> do, do you know the saying about poetry? There is no bread in poetry, but men die every day for lack of what is found there. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I, but, I can't top that. <laughs> but it's true, right? We need to find a way to live and experience the world. And I think poetry for many of us is a way to really crystallize and reflect. And Anyway, I'm, I'm totally into poetry at the moment. So I'm glad that there's many, many of us moving yeah. in that direction. There's a tribe. I, I can't think of a, of a better note and sentiment to go out on. This has been a great conversation. I appreciated it. I appreciate the work. I appreciate the book and the willingness to come on here and, and conversate with me, as we would say. Thank you so much for being on The Deep Dive with me. Phil, it's been a total pleasure. I really appreciate your taking the time to read the book, your fantastic questions and your great sense of humor. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure having Rebecca Henderson join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.